Introducing Toby Haydoke's Time Travels. Hello, my name is Toby Haydoke. You might know me best for cropping up with annoying regularity on BBC, DVD and Blu-ray releases of Doctor Who. Or for being in an adventure in space and time for, ooh, about three or four seconds. Or, of course, for having my initials etched into the ice on the front cover of the Target novelization of Dragonfire. Oh, yes, getting perilously close to the F-list if I keep on going this way. Anyway, listen. Lockdown came, and I thought that what the world really needed was yet another Doctor Who podcast. And I ended up coming up with three. First up, well, you'd think I'd done enough episode commentaries by now, but I figured that during lockdown, when all I could see on the internet and in politics and the papers was everyone getting cross and yelling at each other, that perhaps it was time to do something positive. So, I got in touch with a load of friends. Hello, my name's Dara Carvel. Hi, it's Obi. My name's Joe Lidster. I'm Emily Kirk. My name is Gary Russell. Uh, Johnny Candon here. I'm Richard James. Uh, my name's Emma Reeves. I am Andrew Cartmel. And I asked them to nominate a story for me and to come up with their favourite things about it. It could be a scene, a line, a concept, a performance, a joke, a design, a monster, a name, or even a hat. The things that they choose are many and varied, and they really reflect the different personalities of the diverse spectrum of Doctor Who fans. The best thing about episode two is the reveal of the master. Oh, he's Khaled. Oh, he's not. He's the master. Who would have known? Who's even there to see it? It doesn't matter. It's amazing. One that I think might divide the room, and it is the incidental music and just the, the sound design and editing in general on Battlefield. My best thing about episode one is the fact that in the future, men wear eyeshadow and cheek blusher, thus suggesting a whole sort of revolution in sort of um, the whole gender androgyny thing, uh, which is wonderful. And in the podcast, I have to guess to work out what those favourite things are. And it's not always easy. My best thing about episode four is there's a huge chunk of this episode where we have no idea or very little idea about what is actually going on. But the fact is, even if you hate the chase, it is the only place to see the Beatles on top of the pops. But whilst I am obliged to follow certain rules, you can do what you like. You can watch the episode along with me or you can listen to the podcast on the bus without referring to any pictures at all. And, because it's presented as a podcast and as a proper video on YouTube, you can choose the visual or the audio version. Or both. Here's a taster from a future episode. Um, I've chosen for you The Even of the Daleks from 1967, in which the Daleks' diabolical plot involves them running an antique shop. Well, hello. Night has drawn in, and it's time for a classic, a spooky classic. The first missing episode I've done. 
So without further ado, in whatever form you're going to watch it, or if you're not, hello, I'll try to explain the pictures as best I can. It's Evil of the Daleks, episode one. Press play now. Well, how exciting and also terrifying. <laughs> I mean, I'm quite excited now because Evil of the Daleks is a bona fide classic. Uh, it's also <laughs> seven episodes long and mostly missing. So how enthusiastic am I going to remain tonight? The Evil of the Daleks. I often write um, just Evil of the Daleks, but it is the Evil of the Daleks. Um I'm not, I'm not great on exactness of things like that. Uh, the evil of the Daleks. I know it's horror of Fangrock, isn't it? It's not the horror of Fangrock. Um, so, uh, a shot of some stock footage uh, of Gatwick. And then, of course, the TARDIS is being taken away. So this connects with the end of the Faceless Ones. But, of course, because of the way production was done then, this isn't Gatwick. Of course... In uh, in the old days, I like these pictures of uh, of Trout and Jamie, which I saw quite late in the day. I, are they from the designer? Wherever they're from, they that they, 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 they weren't in the usual run of pictures printed for Evil, which were largely Victoria in her dress and Maxtable and uh, Waterfield in the lab and the fighting um, the the fighting Daleks and the Emperor Dalek, but that yeah, so that wasn't filmed at Gatwick because it was part of this production block. But of course, if that was done now, you'd get whichever unit was on the previous story and go right. We've got a couple of scenes at the beginning, uh, uh, so uh, you know we'll ca capture those for the next show. But but no, uh, you have to you, having just been at Gatwick Airport not that long previously, you then have to uh, do it. I think it was somewhere near the BBC, wasn't it? Some hangers. Now then, uh, Bob Hall is played by Alec Ross, who um, is only in this episode of Doctor Who. It's his only... Uh, but uh, he, he was married at the time to somebody who would go on to be in Doctor Who. He was married to Sheila Hancock. So Bob Hall was married to Helen A. But sadly, uh, Alec Ross um, died not long after this. He died in 71, 72... Uh, of esophageal cancer, which has a a rather sad symmetry for Sheila Hancock because it's also what John Thor died of. Um, I'm not too maudlin, am I? Why do I know this stuff? Why do I know the personal tragedies of actors? It's because the actors always spoke to me. I think it's, you know, middle of nowhere, the idea that you could be, you know, a name on a cast list and, you could spend your time pretending to be other people. Very appealing, and I imagine that sort of exciting life. Yeah, or a life of having to generate content during a global pandemic. Oh, well, I'm game. The commentary wasn't my first idea, by the way. The first idea I had was to do a series of whimsical essays based on some aspect of Doctor Who, no matter how tangential or arcane. It would give me a chance to be both funny and anal, although I don't recommend using funny and anal as the title for a podcast, or indeed the title for anything. Well, certainly anything you want to sell above a counter. However, 
it has produced a series of related yet different monologues. From the history of carrots in Doctor Who... The first time carrots are mentioned in Doctor Who is in episode two of The Ice Warriors, in a scene now sadly lost, so we can't even see it in the dark. The scene is in the plant museum where renegade scientists drop out Penley and ludicrous Luddite store hang about arguing about whether science is good or not, as if in a sponsored flag-up-the-subtext competition. Actually, the person who mentions carrots is scientist Penley, played by Peter Salis. History does not record whether this was the first time Salis had mentioned the carrot professionally, but if it was, it certainly wasn't the apex of the Salis-carrot oeuvre. As Clegg in Last of the Summer Wine, he partook in an episode Green Fingers, which involved a giant plastic carrot employed to undermine a rival vegetable grower. Legume-based hijinks and, inevitably, the giant carrot rolling down a hill ensued. To a personal reminiscence about how the show has broadened the vocabulary of doubtless millions of its young fans. But, you know, Doctor Who has more great lines than bad ones, and yet one of its most celebrated stories has what many have decided is its silliest title, named The Deadly Assassin. After all, he'd be a fairly incompetent assassin if he wasn't just a tad deadly. In fact, I don't think you can call yourself an assassin unless you've excelled in the deadly department on at least a number of occasions. Your deadly-to-non-deadly ratio must firmly favour the deadly. But still, never mind, it's Doctor Who. And in the same way the erstwhile mistake is very much bespoke Doctor Who territory, you'll never hear such a word combo as deadly assassin anywhere outside of Doctor Who. Until one day, in a random episode of MasterChef, or Celebrity MasterChef, or MasterChef the Professionals, or, I don't know, MasterChef 6, Mission to Moscow, presenter Greg Wallace used the phrase, a deadly assassin. I heard him do it. Now, is he a fan? Has that combination, deadly assassin, entered common parlance? Is that phrase from something I haven't read, but Greg has? I mean, the latter is possible, though I hope unlikely, because being less well-read than Greg Wallace definitely isn't on my to-do list. Because I have to confess, I only recently discovered, via somebody else pointing it out to me, that The Ambassadors of Death is not just the title of a Doctor Who story. It's a title that gets its name from something else. It's a reference. To an examination of the war records of certain Doctor Who actors. One such entanglement with the enemy in 1943 resulted in Troughton being mentioned in dispatches for bravery under fire, and he received the Bronze Oak Leaf Medal. He rescued 19 survivors, but lost five of his own crew. Six others were injured, and a close friend was blinded. In 1944, he was given his own command, RML, that's Rescue Motor Launch, 514, and his work on that involved fishing men from both sides out of the cold sea whilst patrolling the coastal strip. He had a 14-man crew who looked up to him, but were also amused by his chosen headwear. After much cajoling from his wife to get himself protection from the elements, he had co-opted a tea cosy to use as a hat, just in case anyone wasn't sure how much of the Second Doctor's eccentricity came from the man who played him. And much else besides. With a lovely score courtesy of Doctor Who theme arranger Dominic Glynn himself, 
Indefinable Magic will be a monthly release, as will the other pretty hardcore idea I have had. Too Much Information. An episode-by-episode, blow-by-blow, York Note-style, everything you needed to know about, and a lot that you didn't, guide to every single episode, yes, that's episode, not story, of Doctor Who, outlining the who, the what, and the where of the show in a painstaking collation of fact and observation. It's a consolidation of what we know and extra detail I've dug out from the archives or interviews or from sideways, with fresh perspectives and deeper delving, all accompanied by an amazing soundtrack from award-winning composer and comedian Wayne Shepherd. 13th of June. The first eight episodes of Doctor Who are confirmed to be recorded at Lime Grove Studio D, the last place anyone involved in mounting the show wants to find themselves in. Doctor Who's demands on equipment and the design department are also ruffling feathers within the BBC. Oh, and talking of feather ruffling, another breeze is caused by the entrance of a young woman known to Newman from ABC, Verity Lambert, a trendy and ambitious 26-year-old who has been appointed to produce Doctor Who. Newman, stung by his experiences with the old guard since joining the BBC, wants someone with piss and vinegar and a keen sense of the now. Lambert has no experience in producing or writing or directing, but she is intelligent and neither gives nor takes nonsense. Donald Wilson, cautious and reserved by nature, is somewhat nonplussed by the engagement, and with the show already irritating various department heads, it feels like Doctor Who has been conceived with the sole purpose of annoying the entire BBC. Tucker, despite the arrival of Lambert, is still on board as the first serial's director and presumably some sort of advisory or supervising producer. He does not hit it off with Lambert, however. They don't agree on anything. This compounds Lambert's unease on arriving for work at a time when the two men who either hired or backed her or both, Sidney Newman and Donald Wilson, are on leave. A friend at least materialises in the shape of a young university-educated British Asian called Warris Hussain, who is brought in to direct Serial 2. 14th of June. Anthony Coburn is formally commissioned to write the first four episodes, the last three of which will be his Stone Age idea, whilst the first will be an establishing instalment based on Weber's notes. Coburn is a staff writer, and his hiring is justified by the expediency with which the scripts are required. And he's also commissioned for the second story because, having written the first, and because they are now running out of time, he is the person best placed to do it. The series is now looking to launch on September the 7th. So that's it. I wanted to do a podcast, so I've done three. All under the umbrella title Toby Haydoke's Time Travels. And they are free on Apple Podcasts and all of the usual podcast outlets. It's hosted on Podbean. And there will be show notes at my website, www.tobyhadoke.com, which is where you can sign up to my mailing list. 
You can also find extra goodies, including bonus episodes and early releases, on my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. And of course, don't forget to sign up to the official Toby Haydoke YouTube channel. Stay tuned for Toby Haydoke's time travels, coming soon. Well, actually, on November the 23rd, of course. There are loads of advanced samples for patrons on my Patreon page, launching on November the 14th. I hope you like them. Patrons will get new content at least three days a week.